Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, there's no short shortage of beauty on this island paradise that Paul found himself on. And it was a... How do we put this? Indulgent place, a laid-back, flip-flop and sunscreen kind of place. If they could, they would have said mahalo to everybody who walked by. Aloha. Uh, Hang loose. Hang ten. It was a laid-back island, and it was full of pleasure-seekers and pirates. Now, maybe there's not a big difference between pleasure seekers and pirates. Uh, But this place, if you went to this place, what you did on this place stayed at this place. In fact, much of the ancient Roman world went to this place to do things that needed to stay at that place and not follow them home. It was kind of like Vegas on Hawaii. Imagine that. This place actually had more freedoms for women in the ancient world than any other place uh, because they needed to have women stay on the island. Uh, It was a place that had 100 cities, notorious 100 cities that were competing with each other for the ancient tourist daughter, daughter, dollar. And today, it's still full of resorts and cities and towns and villages seeking the tourist dollar. And it was here on the uh, southern coast of this island in the harbor of Fairhaven that Paul found himself. He looked around and he saw a lot of sheep without a shepherd. He saw a lot of people with pain and no remedy. He saw a lot of a lot of licentiousness, but a lot of slaves. He he saw a lot of folks who were busy pursuing pleasure, busy pursuing the dollar, busy pursuing everything but God. And the few people that were pursuing gods, they were pursuing Zeus because this was the place where Zeus, uh, it was told, was born and also died. I guess gods could die in the ancient world. Of course, Nietzsche thinks they can die in the modern world. Paul was troubled with what he saw and he and his young associate sought to begin a church In Las Vegas on Hawaii. How do you plant a church in Las Vegas on Hawaii? I mean, think of the challenges. Uh, People who go there are, are tourists or they're looking to get away from the doldrums of life in the, uh, on the continent. 
They go there because they want to experience pleasure and sunshine and warmth. They, they want to make a quick buck. They want to make a fortune. People who go there don't go there seeking God. They go there seeking pleasure and fortune. How do you begin a church in a place like that? Jesus told a parable about uh, different soils, and many of you are farmers or grew up on farms, and you know that soil is very important. The type of soil, knowing what type of soil you have, uh, how much moisture it holds, uh, making sure that it has the right nutrients for the right crop that you are seeking to grow. And here in Las Vegas, in Hawaii, you could argue that the spiritual soil is sterile. There's no hope for any seed that will be thrown out here. In fact, if you drive through Las Vegas today, if you drive down the strip, you won't see a church. You'll see plenty of places of worship, but you won't see a church. You'll see folks who are pursuing pleasure and fortune. You'll see folks who are in slavery and bondage who don't know it. You'll see people who are seeking to escape pain through addictions. You'll see people who are trying to make a quick buck, but you won't see people who are pursuing God. Now, that doesn't mean they're not seeking God because in reality, at some deep level, they may not even know it. And this might be you. At some core level, there's this God-shaped hole in you. And it will not be satisfied with anything less. A young man named Judd Wilhite, he started a church in Las Vegas. My brother and I, when we drove through Vegas, we decided to visit. It's called Central Christian Church. And if you drove too quick, you'd miss it because it looks like an office building. And we went inside and it had all the trappings of what you'd experience in a Vegas church, I would imagine, except for Elvis in a wedding chapel. But there was amazing lights and there was cameras and there was an enormous auditorium and there was an amazing band and, and Judd is a, a compelling speaker and he wrote a book several years ago, ago called Stripped. And he tells of the challenges of seeking to minister to people in Las Vegas. And the first story he tells is a couple who are adult entertainers who are married, who have come to Christ. And they're trying to get out of the lifestyle that they found themselves in. They're trying to follow Jesus in all of their brokenness, in all of their pain, with all of the baggage that their lives bring. It's a compelling story. And as I read it, I thought of this book. This really, it's not a book. It's a letter that Paul wrote to his young associate, Titus, who he left on the Isle of Crete. 
That picture is actually a lighthouse on the Isle of Crete. Uh, Crete, if you do a Google image search, is an amazingly beautiful place. It is a, a place that I think I'd like to go and see now. I mean, it's warm there. It's sunny. There are beaches. There are ancient ruins. Great food. Uh, it's right there in the Mediterranean. You see it at the bottom of the, the, uh, the, the nation Greece. It's actually the largest Greek island. And it was there that Paul left Titus and the work of the church. And for the next nine weeks, we're going to walk through this book, this letter, really, that he wrote to Titus. Because I think that in reading this book together and walking through it together, I think what we'll see is that those challenges that existed in the Vegas on Hawaii exist in the ray on the plane. I think we'll see that there are still a lot of similarities that the church, the modern day church that finds itself in American culture when it's wrestling with how do we speak into this world where somebody can spend their Sunday morning doing anything else besides come to church. Some of you didn't know that, right? Some of you, you've been drug here for so long. Your drug problem is showing at this point. You're like me. The first week of life, I was at church and I haven't stopped. Some of you who are visiting are going, what was wrong with you? And if you didn't know this, If you didn't know this personally, go talk to a neighbor who doesn't go to church and find out how they spend their Sunday mornings. It's like Tim Hawkins joke. The guy who wrote easy like a Sunday morning didn't drag kids to church very often. (laughs) You see, in our modern day culture, Sunday is just another Saturday with football, NFL style. Sunday is just another Saturday. It's just another day off to to get things done that I want to do, to do things that I want to do, to seek pleasure or to seek fortune and to do whatever it is I want to do. I indulged in that lifestyle last Sunday. We slept in. We drove to the burger joint. We had a leisurely lunch. We had nowhere to be. Well, that's not true. My wife kept kicking me under the table saying, we got to leave. We got errands to run. We had to help other people seek their fortunes. And anything and everything that you could possibly do besides be here is an option in modern day America. Anything and everything. You see, churches often think that we're competing with other churches. Church people think that we're competing with other churches, that the competition is the Catholics and the Lutherans and the Assembly of God and the Methodists and New Life. No, 
The competition is sleeping. Some of you do that here, and that's okay. At least. <laughs> and now for the easy listening sounds of Steve Weinkoop's sermon. <laughs> we should make a, a DVD for you to hear. Um, sleeping. Bronco games. In fact, they recently did a poll of Christians asking them what percentage of folks would miss worship in order to attend their home team's football game. I think they lied. Because it came back, 73% said they would go to church. And I thought, they are a bunch of liars. Because if somebody gave me tickets and I wasn't paid to be here, I'd make it happen. And maybe you're just more spiritual than me, but I understand the grace thing better than you, maybe. (laughs) You see, everything and anything we can do on a Sunday morning competes against church. And we also have this anemic view of church. Because we tend to think that church is what we do for an hour or so on a Sunday. We tend to think that that is what counts, that that is what's important, is that when I park myself in a seat for an hour on a Sunday, I'm a Christian. It's so strange because that doesn't happen to us when we sit in a garage. We don't become a car. You see, the church is not just to be this anemic place with no power and no strength and a, a, and a lack of godliness. It's not to be this place that has no impact and no bearing on the surrounding culture. And even if we're completely honest, many churches don't even have an impact on the people that find themselves there for an hour. You see... Paul left Titus on Crete with no building, no elders, no nursery. (laughs) Paul left Titus with no Sunday school, no DVD player, no band, no music. Paul left Titus on Crete with a charge. Go. Advance God's kingdom. Now, I wanted to pick that phrase intentionally because when we say go plant a church, all of a sudden we get all the trappings in our brain of what church is. But Paul said, go build God's kingdom. Now, he may not have said that directly in this passage. He may not have said it directly in this book. But as we look at the opening words to his letter To Titus, I think we see, he says, something more than go plant a church. Paul. Now, people in the ancient world were different than us. You may not have known this because you've never known any of them. They started their letters backwards. So we tend to say who we are at the end of the letter. And how many of you, when you got a letter, flip to the end and go, oh, yeah, it's from him. You know, it would be handy if we went back to the ancient way, probably, because then we would know like when it's 
you know, it says Dish Network at the top or Geico at the top. I know just to rip it up and throw it away, right? And so Titus knew, oh, I probably should keep this. This is important. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, you might think, okay, interesting. He actually talks of himself as being a slave of God. A better translation of this is the a slave of God. And there's only three people in Scripture that ever talked of themselves as being slaves of God. One was Moses, one was King David, and the other is Paul. He's putting himself in pretty elite company here. And he says, I am a slave of God. And when you think of a slave, you think of people who can't do anything on their own volition. They only do what their master tells them to do. You think of people who aren't free to behave and do whatever they want. You think of people who are in change, chains, in bondage, who are being told what to do, how to do it, when to do it. You think of children probably. <laughs> or your children think of themselves. Right? And Paul says, I am a slave of God. Everything that you're going to read about in this letter comes directly from my master, says Paul. This is not just ooey-gooey stuff I made up myself. More than that, he says, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't believe that apostles exist today. You might have driven by a Holy Ghost Apostle Church of the Holy Roller or something or other. Uh, I don't believe in that apostle is an office that functions today. And the reason I believe that is because in the scriptures, all the people who are called apostles saw Jesus. Every single one of them saw Jesus, the risen Jesus. They had a personal visit with Jesus. And you might think, well, Paul doesn't. Qualify. Oh, yes, he does. He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And not only that, he tells us in one of his other letters that he was caught up into the third heavens where he communed with God and with Jesus. He tells us he has seen Jesus. In fact, I've seen Jesus, but not like Paul seen Jesus. I haven't had a, a physical manifestation of Christ before me where I can say I'm an apostle and God has called me out to go forth with his message because that's what it means to be an apostle. Not only have you seen Jesus eyeball to eyeball, but you've also been commissioned by him. He has told you, you're my charge. I have a job for you. Elsewhere in scripture, we learn that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. That's his special job. He left all the other disciples to take care of the Jews. But this one dude is like the special ops guy. You guys be Homeland Security with the Jews. Paul, you're going out on the mission field. And then he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, if you are like most Western Christians, you got stuck on a word in that passage. Do you know which word it is? Elect. It's like a wart on somebody's face. And when you see a person with a wart on their face, you're like, I'm not supposed to look at the wart, but I'm looking at the wart because <laughs> that's what elect is, right? 
because tons of ink has been spilt over that word. And Protestants have divided over this word. And Catholics and Protestants have fought over this. Blood has been spilt over this word. People have been called heretics over their understanding of what it means to be elect. So let's just cut the word off and move on, shall we? The point of the word here is that somebody's been elected. We don't know exactly how. We don't know all the the goings-on behind the election process. We don't know if, you know, you had to be, uh, you know, you, you had to be registered to vote. We don't know how that worked. All we know is that it's God's elect. It's God doing the electing. That's what we know. And when somebody gets elected, that means that they've been hand-picked for a reason. Right? They've been chosen for something. Just imagine if in Ray, when we elected our city council people, that it ended there. They never met. They never did anything. You couldn't write any letters to them or complain. But you elected them and they just sat around going, hey, I'm a city council member. What does that mean? I have no idea, but I was elected. I was chosen by the people to do what? <laughs> just sit around and have a title, I guess. I you see, the elect here is God's elect. And God has chosen these people for a reason. And Paul is actually telling us what the reason is in this first line. To further the faith of God's elect. God's elect's faith is to be furthered, but the faith is also to be furthered by God's elect. And their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Did you know that that's the point of this book? That that's the point of the study of the truth is that it would lead to godliness? I mean, just imagine you are in school. uh, You're laboring through high school. Some of you are there still. And just imagine if it never ended. That there was no... There was no point to it. I can't tell you how often my kids are like, hey, I'm never going to use algebra again in my life. Have you ever used algebra, Dad? No, I'm a pastor. I didn't want to use algebra the rest of my life. (laughs) And nobody wants me to use algebra. Because if I used algebra, bridges and homes and things would be collapsing. If I used algebra, if I used any sorts of mathematics and science combined, trying to do something in this world, it would be bad. That's just me knowing me. And you're glad I know that about me. I've lived in a home at times where the person who built it didn't know that about them. Right? You're like, how did, how, what? I know enough math to know that ain't how you do it. I mean, we've been around it. But my kids have said, when am I ever going to use this? And I say, it depends on what career you go into. It depends on the, the point of your studies. And imagine if our studies were all like algebra, where none of us could figure out the point of it. Why are we studying this? Why do I keep showing up on Sunday mornings? Why do I put myself through this? What is the point? Why do I wake up in the morning and grab this book that's difficult to understand and keep reading it? What if... There was no point or purpose that you could find 
would you do it? What if you're doing it and you still don't quite know? That's why Titus is helpful. Paul says, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Once you're godly, you graduate. Now, before some of you are thinking we're handing out diplomas anytime soon. Because I don't even have a diploma yet. But that's the goal. That's the direction. That's where this truth thing is heading. All this truth is so that we could be godly. It sounds like there's a step of application involved. Sounds like it's not just sitting around going, well, I know that. Well, I know that. Well, I know that. Really hard to tell with how you're behaving. You ever ran into that with your kids? Well, I know I should make my bed. Hmm. Strange. Doesn't look like you know you should make your bed. Well, I know I should empty the dishwasher. Huh. Weird. Doesn't look like you know you should empty the dishwasher. Well, I know I should drive safely. (laughs) Doesn't look like you know you should drive safely. I know this truth leads to godliness. That one hurt a little, didn't it? That one hurt all of us a little bit, didn't it? Because we can all, over the last week or so, go, man, I hope the secret camera wasn't rolling on that one. And by the way, there's more and more cameras watching us all the time. In fact, that's one of the thrusts of the book of Titus, of this little letter. In fact, five times Paul says these two words together, good deeds. And it's like he realizes that in Vegas, what you do in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. Even Vegas on Hawaii And that there's all these cameras and there's all this surveillance and somebody's always watching. Didn't you watch Ocean's Eleven? In my hotel, somebody's always watching, right? Keep the towels. There's always somebody watching what you're doing. And it's not a giant surveillance computer. In fact, if we keep reading, we find out who. This godliness in the hope of eternal life, which... God, who does not lie. See, God is the one that's watching. And this God does not lie. He promised before the beginning of time, in which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. (laughs) By the way, in the Greek, this is one big, long, run-on sentence. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You know, uh, if we didn't know better, we'd just think, boy, Paul's on like, he's kind of spiritual, isn't he? He spiritualizes everything when he writes you a letter. It's all flowery, you know. I mean, look how many times he says God. God, God's elect, hope of eternal life, which God? Um... God, our Savior, 
God the Father five times in one sentence. Five times. This guy's just like super spiritual or something. Or he really, really, really believes it. He really gets it. He really knows that there is a God. And he really knows that this God is our Father. And he really knows that this God is our Savior. And he really knows that he is God's slave. And he really knows that he has been called. He is God's elect. And he really knows that the purpose of his life is to pursue this God, which he calls godliness. And he really knows that the point of Titus' life and his life is to go to places like Crete, Las Vegas on Hawaii, and advance the faith. Now I would argue that's where Paul's writing from. And I would argue that Paul got it because he ultimately gave his life for it. And by the way, Titus, according to church tradition, so it's not in the Bible, but church tradition teaches that Titus was martyred on the island of Crete. That at some point, those in Vegas, on Hawaii, didn't like what Titus said or did. If you were to ask Titus or Paul if it was worth it, which by the way, if you follow Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if you follow Him as King, if you understand that, you will get to sit knee to knee with these guys someday. Maybe it'll be like a big press conference in heaven so that we can, you know, so they don't have to entertain a billion of us individually. I mean, we, we have eternity. It could happen, but they might get bored ask, answering the same questions. In fact, if you watch the press day for the college football game coming up, those guys look bored with answering the same question over and over again. And I, at one point, we're going to get to sit with these men. And we're going to be able to ask them, was it worth it? You died prematurely. You, you were like totally weird because everywhere you went, you were... You were thrown into prison. People rioted. Several times they tried to kill you. You were shipwrecked. You had to turn your back on a normal existence. Paul, was it worth it? I think Paul, he might say something along the lines of, remember that Colosseum in Rome? The Colosseum where... Tons of my brothers and sisters died for their faith in Christ. That Colosseum where they fed believers to lions and tigers and bears, oh my. That Colosseum where gladiators ran swords and pikes and spears through the hearts and bodies of followers of Jesus. That Colosseum where the whims of an emperor could decide life or death. That Colosseum, the gate where Nero, the one who had me beheaded, says Paul, the one who ordered my execution, the gate that he walked through 
into the Colosseum. Do you know what's hanging there now? A cross. Paul, was it worth it? People named their dog Nero and their children Paul. Paul, was it worth it? I think he'd say, without a doubt. In this book, I hope and pray that we as a church will see together that it's worth it. That this body of believers, these brothers and sisters in Christ, can have an impact outside of this place. That we can go out in our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, everyday life and have an impact on Ray and Yuma and the surrounding community. I hope as we read and study this together, God will begin to do new things in us and through us. And that we wouldn't be just about building a church. We would be about creating movement. Creating a movement. A movement of transformed people who are creating a counterculture for the common good. If you're willing to be part of this movement, let me challenge you. Each day for the next week, would you discipline yourself to read this short letter? How short? It's this short. It's not even two pages. Would you discipline yourself each day this next week and read this? Let me go a step further. Would you, for the next nine weeks each day, discipline yourself? To read this? <laughs> you see, one of the things people go is, I could never memorize scripture. Well, of course not. I mean, where do you begin? My guess is if you read this every day for the next nine weeks, you'll start to know some of this stuff. It'll start to be in you. You'll be probably surprised of just what you'll internalize. Over the next nine weeks. Do take this up. Do read it. Join us in becoming a transformed people who are creating a counterculture for the common good. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that 2,000 years ago, Paul left Titus on Crete. And then later thought that he needed to write him a letter. And thank you that Holy Spirit, you saw what Paul wrote. You inspired it. You said, that's good Bible, print it. And 2,000 years later, we can grab it and read it and learn from it. I pray that over the next nine weeks, as we read, as we study, this would seep into our being. That we would be people who start to experience the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. 
and that we would see ourselves as the elect of God who have a task, a call, a job, a vocation that you have given us. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Take up and read the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. Amen.